Welcome to Powered by How, where thought leaders and industry leaders come together to discuss the technologies being developed to build a more sustainable energy sector. This podcast series is brought to you by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco, a leading global energy producer. In this, our first episode, we'll be discussing the opportunities and challenges for innovation and technology required for the energy transition. So welcome again to Powered by How, fueling the energy transition and advancing technologies for a lower carbon future. There are no simple answers to this complex and often controversial subject. So without further ado, let me introduce our panel of experts who will be debating the issues. Ahmed Al-Khuwaita is Chief Technology Officer at Aramco. Ahmed has been with Aramco for over three decades and played a key role in shaping the company's strategies around low carbon energy solutions. Daniel Jurgen is Vice Chair of S&P Global and founder of Week. Daniel is a leading authority on energy, geopolitics and the global economy, a best-selling author and a Pulitzer Prize winner. His latest book is The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Charlotte Wolfe-Bye is Chief Sustainability Officer for Petronas. Her role is to embed sustainability into strategy. Prior to joining Petronas, she was Vice President of Sustainability at Equinor. And we also welcome Professor Jason Bordoff, co-founding Dean of the Columbia Climate School and founding director of the Center for Global Energy Policy. Jason previously served as Special Assistant to Barack Obama and White House Advisor on Energy and Climate Change. Hello and welcome to you all. Hello, thanks for having us. Ahmed Al-Khawaita, I'd like to start with you. Energy companies have come under a lot of fire recently, as we know, with regards to reaching their low carbon goals. How credible are they, say the skeptics? So tell us, what is Aramco doing to meet its net zero ambitions? Well, thank you, Nishay. Uh, Aramco, of course, uh, in 2021 announced its ambition to achieve net zero scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Uh, and that would be from our wholly owned operated assets. Uh, but we haven't just started now. I mean, we, uh, you have to go back in time to really understand uh, our uh, approach to environment and greenhouse gas emissions. So for many years, we have invested in lowering the energy needed to extract our oil, which not only is a key factor in lowering the cost, but also of course, in lowering the resultant emissions. So we have been able to achieve through leveraging our scale and optimizing our technology use, achieve really the lowest emissions from upstream intensity for a barrel of oil at 10.7 kilograms per barrel among all major oil producers. And that has an investment of many, many years. Uh, And that's through efficiency, through technology, and really I would call best in class operational practices like zero routine flaring, uh, like uh, uh, cogeneration and many others. But going forward, that's not gonna be enough. So a lot of what we are uh, working on today is plans for reduction of our emissions, scope one and two from our existing assets. And that would be through three main levers. The first lever, of course, would be carbon capture and sequestration, which is really a technology that can reduce emissions at a large scale from uh, many existing assets. 
Uh, and this doesn't apply only to oil and gas, it applies to uh, many hard to decarbonize sectors of our economy. Uh, in addition, we'll be deploying large scale renewables. We intend to have approximately three gigawatts of renewable capacity. Uh, and ultimately, uh, sorry, uh, about 12 gigawatts of, uh, of renewable capacity, about one third of the kingdom's plans for 2035. And we also intend uh, to deploy some of the world's largest carbon capture projects, uh, up to 11 million tons of CO2 capture uh, by 2035. And finally, our uh, one other lever would be actually offsetting. Uh, and that would be through, for example, nature-based solutions like planting of mangroves, uh, which we've been doing for many years. Uh, we targeting about 300 million uh, mangrove plantation by 2035. So a lot of levers, but those are the key, I would say, initial levers that we intend to utilize. Okay, great. Thanks for kicking us off, Ahmed. And I particularly want to dive into what you were saying about carbon capture later on. Um, just want to bring in uh, Charlotte Wolf by now. You're responsible for embedding sustainability into Petronas's net zero strategy. What are the key challenges that you've identified in meeting those goals, Charlotte? So what we have been doing um, is to look very carefully at all of our assets and look at the or assess the forecasted emissions going forward. And it's something that we've been uh, quite busy doing for a long time. So over the last 10 years or so, we have already reduced about 17 and a half million tons of CO2 equivalent. Now that's a big number, but maybe to put it into context, it's equivalent to something like the annual emissions of the country of Croatia. So that's the amount of emissions we already reduced. Now, is it about re-engineering? Well, first of all, we must ensure uh, energy efficiency of our assets and, and operations. So uh, reducing flaring and venting is absolutely critical. Other optimizations uh, across uh, our activities, um, upstream activities, very, very important. But at the same time, we're also looking to develop new uh, lines of business, uh, broadening our base into new energy solutions that are uh, low carbon in their nature. For instance, can you give us some examples? Well, certainly. So in Petronas, we are looking um, at hydrogen, for instance, both blue and green. Uh, we are also looking at carbon capture and sequestration. And if I could just uh, focus in on that a little bit, CCS is interesting because um, not only would that help uh, immediately to reduce emissions for our own operations uh, at, at scale, but what we're also doing now, we're looking to see whether we could actually service other high emitting sectors through C by offering CCS as a service. So that's sort of another opportunity. We're also um, scaling up um, renewables. So we have big targets in, in uh, renewables energy capacity and, and then also um, biofuels and, and other solutions. Jason Bordoff, we've just heard from two major global oil and gas producers, Aramco and Petronas, about their net zero strategies and ambitions. How credible do you find them? And uh, also, could I ask you, what do you think will be the role of energy companies, the giant energy companies, in this energy transition going forwards? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, great to be with you all. It's um... We're going to need every tool in the toolkit to get to net zero by a goal like 2050. And um, 
that includes things like carbon capture, carbon removal, hydrogen. We need leadership from everyone, including the oil and gas industry, to build those capabilities and those technologies. If you think about the, the modeling work that's been done to look at what net zero by 2050 looks like, the global system for capturing, storing, transporting CO2 uh, rivals that of the oil and gas industry today not to mention the scale of hydrogen that's needed, uh, zero carbon hydrogen, green or blue, uh, to do things that are harder to decarbonize, like power industry, steel and cement, maybe shipping, things like that. So some of the world's largest oil companies have the capital budgets, the project management skills, the engineering expertise to deliver on those things. And it's good to see more of them moving in that direction. But we, we, have, we need to be moving much faster and we need to be asking much more, not just of the largest energy companies, but of all of us. I mean, we're so far from being on track to take a goal like net zero 2050. Uh, as we heard from Ahmed, uh, Saudi Ramco is doing a lot on clean energy technology. Saudi Ramco is also... Uh, and Saudi Arabia is spending billions of dollars to increase the capacity of the country to produce more oil. That is because the outlook for global demand is one that is expected to rise, not shrink. So as a world, collectively, we're not doing nearly enough to reduce demand for hydrocarbons moving forward, consistent with the kind of goals that we are talking about. There is going to need to be a very significant role for carbon capture carbon removal, carbon storage in a net zero world. Um, but to be clear, that that doesn't mean business as usual will continue. You don't get to net zero and still use 100 million barrels of oil a day. If we get to those goals, we're going to be using much less than today, but not zero. We're still going to be using oil. We're still going to be using gas, and we're going to be having to find ways to remove, offset, capture uh, the emissions with technology or with the natural solutions like 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 nature-based solutions that Ahmed was uh, was talking about. So I think it's 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 important for uh, industry to play a leading role in this, and and for the kind of technological capability that Ahmed's team to has to to be put toward this. And once we have the economic forces, the drivers, the demand for low carbon technologies really increasing, uh, I think we're going to see we can see many many energy companies playing an important role in delivering those technologies. And in a world that's using much less oil than today, which barrels do you want to use? You want to use the ones that are cheapest and the ones that are lowest carbon intensity. And so the fact that, as Ahmed said, uh, barrels produced by Saudi Aramco are some of the lowest uh, greenhouse gas footprint ones, lower rates of methane, less energy to extract and produce, um, the low scope one and two emissions is really important for the pathway to net zero. Daniel Jürgen, now you've been outspoken, I know, about the complexities of the energy transition, that they're going to be many different pathways, and sometimes they're not going to be going in the direction we want them to, and we need to be realistic about that. I've seen you write about a tendency to be too binary in thinking about the use of hydrocarbons. What does that mean? Well, I think it goes back to what Jason has said. It's not uh, on or off, but it's how you use them and the ability to deal with carbon capture. But Nisha, I think you've pointed to the main thing, and in a sense, Jason's remarks already suggest it. Uh, there are models that say what you're going to do. The direction is clear. But I think this fact is, as you noted, Nisha, there are many different energy transitions. India's energy transition is going to be different from that from Brussels. And what really, you, you know, this term energy transition is used, but there's no agreement on what it means. And when I, uh, in, in researching the new map, 
went back and said, well, what are the other energy transitions like? And they're wholly different. They unfolded over a century and it wasn't that uh, something disappeared. Uh, oil overtook coal uh, as the world's number one energy source in the 1960s. We use three times as much coal today. So uh, this is a whole different thing to say that in 28 years, you're gonna completely change the energy foundation of what is roughly give or take, depending on the economy, an $88 trillion world economy that today gets 82% uh, of its energy uh, from hydrocarbons. So I think the direction is clear, but uh, the complexity ought to be recognized as well. And adding to all that complexity, of course, we're now seeing a war in Europe, the war in Ukraine, which has led to a major global energy crisis with rocketing oil and gas prices and perverse effects, it seems, on the energy transition, whichever one we're looking at, Daniel. Uh, at least in the short term, fossil fuel use of coal has been increasing in multiple regions in Asia and across Europe. So what is going on? Are we seeing the energy transition going into reverse as a result? of the Ukraine war? Is that too simplistic a way of looking at it? Jason Bordoff. Well, it's hard to say <clears throat> that the energy transition is going into reverse because it had it, it was so barely underway. So if you define an energy transition by emissions falling, which is what the world cares about for climate change, other than recession or pandemic, emissions have gone up each and every year. <laughs> and um, oil, gas, and to some extent, even coal use, were continuing to increase. So again, I think what this conflict <clears throat> is reminding us about, first, there are a host of concerns about energy security. And I think Dan Jurgen put it well in one of his recent writings, you know, over the last decade or so, the world had developed a collective amnesia with the risks of energy security and energy geopolitics in this age of abundance, where we had the shale revolution and lots of supply and low prices. Energy security remains a real thing and, and risks remain real. You need to think about that in terms of how you diversify your sources of supply or develop other tools of resilience like strategic stockpiles or whatever you do as a country. We're seeing a focus on that for supply chains generally now coming out uh, of the pandemic. Um, but it is also forcing, or I think a reckoning with something I've been writing about for a while, which is that the gap between ambition and reality when it comes to the energy transition for several years, I worried, was growing, not shrinking. We need to make sure that we are investing adequately to meet today's energy needs, uh, to make sure energy is secure and affordable and reliable for people. That's not only good for geopolitics and the economy, it's also necessary for the energy transition because if you can't meet energy needs affordably and securely, uh, if they come into tension with climate ambition, climate ambition is gonna lose. And I think that's part of what you see happening around the world today in the near term. <clears throat> I do think it's important to, as you said, recognize that what is happening today is also reminding people that if we were less dependent on globally traded hydrocarbons, inevitably exposed to some degree of geopolitical risk, you might be more secure. You're seeing European countries uh, <clears throat> try to come together around cutting gas demand 15%, for example. Some of those will be near-term measures, but some of those I think will be longer lasting and, and we can use energy more efficiently. We can, over a period of time, not overnight, uh, accelerate the pace at which we invest in some clean energy alternatives that diversify the energy mix and have energy security benefits as well as climate benefits. Nisha, let me add something to that. Uh, Jason really sketched out the, the, the landscape, but we should recognize that the world has been in an energy crisis since the second half of uh, 2021 because of very tight markets. 
uh, and uh, actually underinvestment in energy. It's been compounded by a global geopolitical crisis focused on uh, Ukraine and Russia, of course. And so on top of everything else, the global markets have been disrupted. So all of that is intruding on you know, plans for the future. And so as Jason noted, uh, Germany is now burning more coal. Uh, it's building LNG terminals. And uh, Jason referred to my article about amnesia. I mean, Germany now says, well, we have to continue and let's step up renewables, what we're doing, but we also have to shore up our energy security with the reality of today. Let's bring Charlotte in now on this question of the impact of the Ukraine war. Do you think the war will be a turning point and accelerate investment in great self-sufficiency and sustainability or have the opposite effect, Charlotte? So over the past decade, we've all benefited from free trade across borders, which made us take energy security for granted. And that trade also supported growth of new global supply chains, development of resources and technology transfers that made energy more affordable across the world. But of course, today, right here and now, the situation is vastly different. So while energy security is now top of mind and the affordability crisis is stretching societies to the brink, really, yet I would say that decarbonization is the defining, the defining long-term issue. And, and personally, I do believe that the current situation is a watershed moment. Global trade has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and, and generated progress and wealth for many new nations. It may now go in, into reverse. We see self-sufficiency in food, aspirations for local energy generation, key resources and so on. And this is the response that we're now seeing. But these reactions aren't just limited to, to Europe and we see many other countries drawing up plans, plans for, um, for instance, nuclear and renewables on, on home soil. So I would say that what we're seeing now is likely to be more of a structural change than a temporary fix. For instance, we see planning laws are being relaxed for renewable energy, both in, in the US and, and across Europe. And for instance, Germany, uh, I think they put 2% of their landmass aside for renewables uh, infrastructure development. So, but also as a sustainability professional, I would like to highlight that if the globalization ends here, it will have broader consequences. Whole countries will suffer with a reduction in global trade and the competitive landscape will change. So all in all, I think this crisis situation today won't result in a sustainable future in the, in the broader sense. I'd like to move away from where we are now and try and peer into the future and pick up on the point that Ahmed said right at the beginning, which was that carbon capture, storage, utilization, all those technologies will play a big role in trying to address some of the issues that we face. So far, it hasn't really happened, has it? Although that the technologies and know-how are there, especially in the oil and gas sector. So Ahmed, what is going to be different? What are you going to do at Aramco? What do you think the industry is going to do to make this a reality? So, um, you know, the energy sector has actually invested in carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, in two ways. One uh, in the past has been uh, for basically oil production in the form of enhanced oil recovery. Uh, so it hasn't been carbon capture as much. It has been more about utilization of CO2. 
Um, typically, it was actually mined, so it wasn't really subtracting from the net amount of CO2. But for the, the important part is that it, there was an economic incentive to actually utilize that CO2. And that's what's been missing all along um, to really deal with uh, and, and to grow an industry like carbon capture and sequestration. Because as you know, it's a cost uh, when you are sequestering uh, and, and it has no real utilization at this point. And therefore, the lack of incentives for uh, the reduction of CO2 uh, is one of the main reasons why the carbon capture sequestration industry has not taken off. But recently, uh, as we've seen in North America with the uh, uh, 45Q uh, policy, uh, uh, also in the UK with government uh, support for carbon capture, we're seeing a renaissance or a kind of a revival of carbon capture projects. We're seeing a pipeline of world-scale projects being developed, not only in North America and the UK, but also even in continental Europe. Uh, where it's being taken much more seriously. And now in the Gulf region, government is working on providing incentives and uh, for, for carbon capture and sequestration and aiding industry in the hard to decarbonize sectors reduce their emissions. Uh, so now we think that the governments are actually serious about this. It's going to take off. It was not a technical issue. We have had a pilot project uh, doing with sequestering 800,000 tons of CO2 for the last seven years. Uh, no problems from a technical point of view, uh, operationally, uh, very similar to our existing oil and gas facilities. The realization has been that there's no way to get there in time without something like carbon capture and sequestration, and even, which is kind of a stationary carbon capture, but even negative emissions from the atmosphere are required. Uh, and this is pretty much a common feature or common requirement and almost all the IPCC scenarios for net zero. Uh, and that the, basically the consensus is that there's no economic, techno-economic way to get to net zero without carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, and that's why we're seeing governments and, and uh, policymakers, uh, you know, basically changing their mind about CCOS. The, uh, and that's why we are investing uh, in major projects on CCOS. We think that it's going to be a key enabler for net zero. Uh, in the kingdom, we think it's going to be a competitive advantage, actually, for the economy, because having low carbon energy uh, is going to be a differentiator in the future carbon-constrained economy of the world. Uh, so that's one of our, we believe we have an access to large reservoirs of sedimentary basins that can take at a low cost CO2. We have the technology, we have the concentration of industry uh, that allows a lower cost of decarbonized energy. And so that's where we think, coupled with renewables and hydrogen, uh, that there can be competitive advantage, in fact, to developing this, and especially if it can be done uh, in, in a way that, uh, in, in a uh, synergistic way with uh, the oil and gas industry. Nisha, it's important to recognize, underline one thing that uh, Ahmed said, which is that the IPCC, the UN, has basically said you don't get to their goals without carbon capture, uh, whether they call it negative emissions, whatever they call it, uh, it's recognized that it has to be part of the mix. But do you agree with Ahmed that governments are now beginning to recognize that that's essential and are prepared to provide the funds, massive subsidies will be needed to get to carbon capture on any kind of scale, we need at least 10 times as many projects as we currently have, I understand. Well, I, I don't think, 
I'm not sure massive, I think subsidies, just as there are subsidies for wind and solar, there would be subsidies for carbon capture. Uh, and of course, technology has to develop, but it was very interesting. I was talking to an offshore drilling company. They're now looking at, quote, new energy business and their new energy business they're looking at is injecting carbon into uh, 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 empty reservoirs. So, you know, it's, it's, it's innovation, it's technology, it's government support and the recognition that you don't get to where you want to get to without it. There are several decarbonizing technologies being developed, including carbon capture and storage, which we've been discussing. What are your thoughts, Charlotte, on the role of governments in driving the energy transition, both in terms of enabling policies and providing financial support and subsidies? The decarbonization agenda relies heavily on a top-down approach. So for investments to flow into low carbon technologies, you need some level of, of certainty of government policy. And there are, of course, many helpful instruments that government can apply, such as um, carbon pricing, emissions performance standards, tax, break, tax breaks, direct support for R&D, human capital, and so on. And then government also would have to go through an exercise where conflicting policies are being phased out. And ideally, incentives and supports uh, support are technology agnostic to spur kind of a market response. And I think for new value chains to be developed, and we talked about CCS and hydrogen or biofuels, the market will re require much support to de-risk initial investments and also to create momentum for innovation and help drive down the costs. So the end in mind should be that new value chains should be able to stand on their own feet after an initial incubation period that the government would have supported. Jason Wardoff, do you think that the world has woken up to the need for this? That governments are prepared to start subsidizing carbon capture to make it viable? In the US, we have a 45Q tax credit, which provides support. A recent you know, agreement in Congress would expand and extend that. Most of the modeling uh, I think that, that I'm familiar with shows that carbon capture and removal plays a, a meaningful role and uh, an effort to advance the technology. The Biden administration is doing that through some of its, uh, its, its investments in, in research and development, trying to bring down the cost of that technology. But I think maybe what people haven't fully appreciated yet is the scale. If you really wanna take a goal like net zero 2050 seriously and expand energy use globally, because there's a lot of people in emerging markets and the developing world who use very little energy at all on a per capita basis, um, the numbers are really big and we need to get these technologies to scale. And the challenges with that are not fully uh, appreciated. And, and, and the other thing I would just add is, I, do, I think it's important to recognize two things. One, I agree that what I care about is getting to net zero and doing it in the easiest and cheapest way and, uh, and, and having carbon capture as one of the tools in the toolkit uh, helps, helps make that happen. Um, in, in most applications, it's, it's not the cheapest or the first thing you would do. If you want to decarbonize electricity, you want to deploy a lot of renewables. And then we know, for example, that it's going to be cheaper to get to net zero electricity if you have a meaningful amount of firm dispatchable power, meaning power that can be uh, used 24-7, not solar and wind, which are intermittent. It could be nuclear, it could be natural gas with carbon capture. So 
it will play a role, but it's not the dominant role. Now, there are other sectors where it's harder, like in, in, in heavy industry, uh, things like steel and cement, and uh, there are other, other places where, where it will be needed in, in larger scale. But I just want to put it in context that it's one tool in the toolkit, but it, it's, it's, it's not the dominant one. And what about hydrogen as a, the big fuel for the next decade? One hears so much about it. There have been so many announcements that have been made in the last year or two. Governments around the world seem to be announcing collaborations and projects. I love your question, what about hydrogen? Because I remember four or five years ago, I would give a speech and somebody would say, what about hydrogen? And you'd say, well, what about hydrogen? Uh, Ahmed would have a very good sense of this, but it seems to me only in the last maybe three years has hydrogen gone from being way over in the corner to becoming a potentially central tool. Ahmed, I don't know if that's your perception, but it's just striking to me, it's really what you've said, Nisha, what a change. I agree. I think both actually, for the same reasons that I said about carbon capture, hydrogen has become a front and center, like the primary choice for hard to decarbonize sectors. Uh, as a, so if we look at hard to decarbonize uh, sectors, there's really only two options uh, today with technology as we have it today, mature, which would be either carbon capture retrofits or displacement of hydrocarbons with hydrogen, because they're relatively a drop in solution for many of these. Uh, uh, for example, steel, you can reduce steel, iron ore with methane, or you can reduce it with hydrogen alone. There's some changes, some technology risk, but in general, it's the fastest path to decarbonizing these hard to decarbonize sectors. It depends on which one is, is, is a better fit for uh, the policymaker or the region. So for example, in Europe, uh, there's not too many carbon capture options. So green hydrogen is really the, the main option for decarbonizing many sectors. Uh, in places like the Gulf, uh, in I would say in the US Gulf Coast, uh, uh, the Arabian Gulf, uh, and, and maybe North Sea, carbon capture might become a cheaper option in some cases. In some cases, uh, low carbon hydrogen would be, uh, or green hydrogen might be a better option. So it really does depend, but they're, I would say that they both, for similar reasons, uh, they are, uh, it is becoming a, I would say the key decarbonization option after renewables. Uh, renewables, of course, can only decarbonize technically today 18% of the energy mix. And that's because that's the 18% of the primary energy mix, which uses electricity. Um, slowly, technology is allowing a greater part of that energy mix. For example, light duty vehicles uh, are utilizing batteries. Batteries allow uh, electricity to decarbonize the transport sector, at least in the light duty uh, sector. So uh, there is a transition uh, that is happening uh, in the primary energy mix uh, of, of increasing electricity use, electrification. But in the time frame we're talking about, we really need drop-in solutions. And drop-in solutions are things like hydrogen and carbon capture. So from where we're sitting today, hydrogen does not seem to me like a drop-in solution. It seems to me that we're a long way off from that. We're going to need a lot of investment, technological progress. A number of issues need to be addressed. Infrastructure investment. Dan, can you make sense of this for us? I think it, it I mean, that's true, but I don't think necessarily far off. I mean, the European Union says that they expect to get 25% or more of their energy from hydrogen by 2050, but you know, they're not getting really any right now. I mean, really, I think 
is an issue of it's big engineering, uh, it's scale. Uh, that's the issue. I mean, technology is an issue, but I think, you know, this goes back to the fact that the energy system is really big. And so you need things that are big. And, and so it's, you know, I'd say engineering is, uh, big engineering is, is a key ingredient. I mean, we, we know how to make uh, low carbon hydrogen. Uh, we just need to make it at scale and we need to bring the cost down. And you're going to do that with cheaper um, for green hydrogen, cheaper zero carbon energy, renewable energy, and cheaper electrolyzers, the kind of tools you need to, to, to make the hydrogen from zero carbon electricity. Uh, and then you need demand. So right now there's a massive amount of money that's going into developing hydrogen supply I'm not sure where all that hydrogen is going to be used unless we also see it being met by significant increases in demand for hydrogen. And so it'll be interesting to look over the next couple of years at some of the largest steel companies in the world and others. Are they really putting real capital behind things that would go beyond where hydrogen is used today in refining or fertilizer or, or things like that? Hydrogen projects are already getting a lot of interest across Asia, including at Petronas. So what are your thoughts on the timeline for delivery, Charlotte? Will blue hydrogen derived from natural gas together with CCS or green hydrogen using renewable energy actually replace fossil fuels anytime soon in the next 10 or 15 years, for instance? So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of momentum, a lot of talk about hydrogen right now. And, and most Asian countries have pledged to introduce hydrogen into their energy mix. Now, maybe a couple of words around the hydrogen. So natural gas combined with carbon capture and storage is probably the easiest way to produce so-called blue hydrogen and ammonia, and, and they're through making them low carbon fuels. And, and here you can then also use it um, to existing gas infrastructure and over time bring in green fuels with zero emissions made through renewables whenever they come on stream. But the main issue with hydrogen right now is that we must bring down the cost of producing hydrogen. We also need to create the demand whilst we're working on the supply and building the whole industrial ecosystem around these new value chains. And in Europe, we see that this, this sort of kick-started this, this development by um, we have new industrial clusters and consortia that's been formed um, and I think it's only a matter of time before that will also happen here in Asia. And Petronas, we are hydrogen producers already today. Um, and now we are exploring the commercial production of green hydrogen. And, and here we developed our own proprietary electrolyzer design, and we are applying a dynamic uh, approach to research and development to commercialize green hydrogen at the com uh, competitive price point. And already today, our electrolyzer can produce highly affordable green hydrogen well below market rates. Um, but it is the broader infrastructure that you require and, and the demand to also be there. So we've entered into a partnership with a Japanese industrial partner with the aim to develop a commercial hydrogen value chain. What's going to happen in my view in the future is the low carbon energy is gonna be an attraction for hard to decarbonize sector. So yes, we do expect to be utilizing a lot of green hydrogen in the kingdom to enable low carbon products to be manufactured because hydrogen is a very important feedstock in this new, new economy. Uh, similarly, carbon capture uh, and sequestration, I, I think is going to be an advantage. You know, every $15 of cost reduction in carbon capture is equivalent to $1 
a million BTU of energy cost reduction. So it's a very, you know, it's, it's just as important as the cost of energy in terms of attracting industry, which is dependent on high cost of energy. So uh, it, it, to us, there's, a, there's an opportunity here. We have a proximity of industry, heavy industry, uh, to carbon capture, uh, carbon sequestration uh, facilities. We have a proximity of renewable power, low carbon and very low cost renewable power. Uh, and, and hydrogen is that missing link that to enable many of these industries uh, to establish themselves that, uh, to be able to produce low products. So we do think, and, and it's important to remember that a lot of our CO2 actually from the from Aramco, by the way, is, is actually uh, emitted in the kingdom. So all of our natural gas is consumed in the kingdom and all the associated CO2 with that. And that's equivalent to 2 million barrels a day of, of oil by itself. Now, if you look at the oil consumed in the kingdom, that's another two to three million barrels. That's feedstocks for refineries and uh, hydrocarbon uh, and, and products, plastics and things like this. And so there is quite a opportunity for carbon capture in the kingdom. Uh, and so, yes, for those that for export, we need to look at solutions like blue ammonia, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen uh, to be able to capture the CO2 here, for example, or send a product without the CO2. But there's still a large share of our of our economy is dependent on use of hydrocarbons in the kingdom. So I, I want I want to I want to come in there because uh, I mean this is hydrogen is very different from the early days of the internet, but it also has some similarities, which is a lot of people are rushing in with a lot of different solutions, and you know there will be some who will be winners and losers. I mean there's some people who have a different vision of how hydrogen will work, and they're saying oh the model of hydrogen is like uh, the liquefied natural gas business, and it will be a global trade in hydrogen and CO2 and so forth, an entirely different vision. And you know what happens, and kind of that's the way the system works. Lots of different people try things, and some will fail, and some will succeed. And it's a little too early to say uh, to make a bet on who the winners will be. Charles, I want to ask you a bit of a different question now, comparing state-owned energy producers versus commercially-run producers. Do they have a different approach to innovation or investment? Do you think? So, state-owned energy producers have broader impacts, also partly because they shoulder broader responsibilities in, in society. And maybe there's sort of a, a three points to, to respond to your question here. Uh, firstly, I think state-owned uh, enterprises can help inform policy when innovation and new technology comes on stream. For instance, in the, in the case of CCS, you know, what kind of policy is required to, to make that viable? Um, Secondly, what's also very important for a national oil and gas company is to drive transformation in the value chain, so the whole oil and gas value ecosystem. And, and maybe a couple of examples here. Uh, Petronas Venture Investment Funds, they invest into new promising technology and solutions internationally. But we're always looking at how we could scale up the newest technology in Malaysia. And we're also looking for homegrown talent and, and entrepreneurship. And the third point would be around um, creating social impacts through new ventures and commercial opportunities, also through upskilling and, and sort of retooling talents. So there's always a social imperative in a state-owned enterprise. And I know this is a small example, but I, I, I wanted to share, for instance, what we do in Petronas. Um, every year, we send a group of interns 
from University Technology Petronas to work as part of the Mercedes AMG Petronas Formula One team. And this is a small example of many, many others, um, ways to create social impact. And, and I can also add that uh, Petronas has, uh, since its inception in the 70s, supported over 37,000 students through education to make sure that the skills for the energy system are there for now and for the future. And I think that's the difference between a pure market player and a, and a national oil and gas company. So I'm gonna ask all of you a final question. And that is, so far, the energy transition has been driven mainly by utility companies, big government bodies and startups. In the next decade, are we going to see the traditional energy giants oil and gas sector driving the key technologies and creating new markets and solutions so that they become the leaders of the energy transition or the multiple energy transitions who would like to take that well i'll take it first to say i mean they are players because at the end of the day you can have models you can have powerpoints you can have ambitions but it all comes down at the end of the day to engineering to be able to do things at scale to be able to execute and if you look at it who are, it goes back to what jason said at the beginning the energy companies are, are you know they see where things are going and they'll increasingly uh be players in this and they bring scale they bring scale and and, and those capabilities to it that you know not a lot of other companies do and so they're they're redefining themselves right now as energy companies do you agree with that, Jason Bordoff? Are we going to see the traditional oil and gas giants um, driving the next phase of the energy transition? Well, I think there are important players in it. We need to see a lot more, again, not only from the energy companies, from all of us, we need to see a lot more uh, action to move faster toward decarbonization. Uh, we're going to need all, all, everything you said. We're going to need startups. We're going to need new technologies. We're going to need the next uh, Tesla that you know figures out how to have breakthrough technologies that that bring down the cost of long duration storage or how we decarbonize uh, aviation or some of these big challenges that we're trying to solve. Um, and uh, I think some of the world's largest energy companies can and should be moving faster to play <clears throat> a big role uh, in that. And, and some of that has been happening. I'm, I'm here at the, at, the, at the Jersey Shore, just, just south of New York, and, and you go to offshore of New York, there's a lot of wind being developed by companies like Equinor and BP and, uh, and some of the large, large global energy companies. So again, project expertise, uh, capital budgets, um, engineering expertise, we're going to need all of those, and they exist within some of these large uh, global energy companies. Just need all of them to be doing um, even more to move in that direction even faster, as we all need to be doing. So I'm going to ask you this, Charlotte. How confident are you that going ahead into the next few decades, energy companies will adapt and invest in the challenge of a lower carbon future? I do believe that the energy sector is already well on its way on the energy transition. Now it's true that we've not scaled up, we're not at the pace where we need to be, but there's enough um, sig policy signals now in the world. I think there's, an, uh, there's enough money on the table to make this transition just sort of really speed up. And I would say that in our sector in general, we have the capability, capacity and resources to deliver major infrastructure projects that will enable large scale energy solutions. So I am confident that we will 
put the money on the table, invest where the money wisely and deliver the energy transition that we all need and want. Ahmed al Khawaita, how do you convert the skeptics and convince them that oil giants like Aramco, like Petronas, the rest of the sector are serious about the energy transition and decarbonizing? Now I'll give you an example. Our Jafuda project, which is planned for 2030, um, is a uh, 11 million uh, tons a year of ammonia uh, production, blue ammonia, low carbon ammonia. That's the plan. Um, and we'll be getting investing in the middle of the 20s. Uh, that's equivalent to a 50 gigawatt renewable power project. So you can see the scale of the energy mix. This as we consider is, is equivalent to a 225,000 barrel a day increment. So imagine, you know, this is a only, for us, it's a small increment, 225,000 barrels a day equivalent to a 50 gigawatts uh, a year, uh, uh, sorry, 50 gigawatt uh, renewable power plant. So when you start getting to the numbers of the global primary energy mix, you know you have to spend big capital and you have to be able to, ma to manage massive mega projects. Uh, and that's why I think our, our capabilities come into play and are needed in this transition and this transformation of the energy mix. So I really believe we're going to be a big player uh, in our in the area where we can do best, which is you know, I view mega projects transporting energy from markets from supply supply to market and markets. That's where what we understand and that's what we where we will invest. Uh, and I think uh, there is going to be a lot of new players. There's no question about it. Uh, and uh, we hope to be part of the the, the energy mix uh, as as important as we are today and hopefully even greater. Ahmed al Khoueta, Charlotte Wolf by Daniel Jurgen, and Jason Bordoff. Thank you so very much for joining me. It's a, a huge subject. I've had a fascinating and insightful peek into it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we'll be discussing mobility. How can we keep moving without heating the planet beyond the point of no return? Join me, Nisha Pillay, for Powered by How, Moving the World Forward the future of transport. This podcast has been brought to you by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco. Thanks for listening.